The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. Good morning, Mountain Park. Uh, my name is Alan, and uh, that's uh, kind of what we're doing this year, is imagining what it would be like to be one of those guys. We're spending this whole year in a series called uh, AD, the year of our Lord, imagining what it would be like to be one of the 12. What would it be like to be Andrew, to be Peter, to be one of the ones who got to hang out with Jesus, to uh, talk about him, to watch what he did, to see how he interacted with other people, and... Um, uh, so we're going we're gonna to draw from that, uh, from what Scripture has to say, from the stories that are told, from the, from the um, words that he says. Uh, we actually don't know a lot about the upbringing of Jesus. We know uh, one main story of when Jesus was 12, when uh, his, his parents lost him uh, at the temple, which is a very awkward situation. We lost God. Uh, we lost him at the temple. We don't know where he is. Uh, a very tricky but fascinating, interesting little story there. Uh, we don't know much about his upbringing. We, uh, we know that his uh, adopting father, Joseph, was a carpenter. So we have every reason to believe that Jesus grew up uh, as an apprentice uh, to be a carpenter, and so that Jesus was a carpenter. But he was poor. He, did, he was not a, a man of means. He didn't have much money. But we can see from this very early story, this story of the, the miracle at the, wedding of, at the wedding in Cana was one of the early um, stories of Jesus. And we see from this early story that his provision goes beyond sustenance and goes into extravagance. Jesus is extravagant. He's poor yet extravagant. So what we're going to be looking at today is what would it look like for us to experience the extravagant love of Jesus? What would that look like? What would it look like for us to then in turn be extravagant in terms of our resources? What would that look like for us to be emotionally extravagant with the people we are doing life with? What does it look like to love extravagantly? That's what we're looking at uh, today. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we welcome you here. We are so thankful for your presence. We pray that you would pour uh, your love on us extravagantly today. And as a result, we would want to love others extravagantly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to pull out your uh, Bibles. We're going to take a look at this story of the, uh, the turning of water into wine at the wedding in Cana. It's found in the book of John. Chapter 2, the New Testament begins Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's the fourth gospel that we find in the New Testament, the fourth book in the New Testament. John chapter 2. <clears throat> John chapter 2 begins, On the third day a wedding took place in Cana, in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. See, they weren't wedding crashers. Unlike Peter and Andrew, there they weren't hey, wild and crazy guys entering into the wedding. They were actually invited, just to, just to uh, take away that myth. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Fascinating little... Um, uh, sentence there. We're going to come back to that later on. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. 
I love that response from mom, from Mary. That, again, we don't know much about Jesus' upbringing. We don't know uh, when he or how he kind of discovered his abilities, um, that he was both 100% man and 100% God. We don't know if uh, he tortured his brother by <laughs> making things happen to him. Uh, uh, he, he was eight. He had to have been eight. How did he handle being eight? Uh, how, did, how did he uh, do that? Did he spit in the mud and make a little, uh, um, a little uh, thing to put on his face to help him with his acne when he was a teenager? We don't know. We don't know what, what he did. But this little phrase from mom, this little sneaky little phrase here, says she was aware of what he was capable of. Somehow, she says, she says to the servants, how as weird as it might sound, do whatever he tells you. I love that, love that. See how the uh, story continues. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And then I believe as we enter into verse 7, I believe it's reasonable that Jesus took a deep breath because he crossed the line when he went into this verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. He entered into his public ministry here. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Now many wonderful followers of Christ, I would guess that some here in this room, uh, believe that uh, everything about alcohol is wrong. And so that our uh, understanding of this story is that, uh, that the wine Jesus is talking about here is not wine the way we understand wine. And you can uh, read a number of chapters and go to a number of different websites and get support that that's, that's what's happening here in this story. But it seems to me that there's more evidence toward this being wine as we understand wine. Uh, that Jesus actually turned this into wine. Now, Jesus does not condone drunkenness. That would be inconsistent with Scripture. Jesus doesn't do that. His character doesn't allow him to do that. Uh, but he chose to keep the party going. He chose to keep the, the party going. I think that when you're hanging out with Jesus, that um, it's not going to be boring for too long. And Jesus here at this story, he wanted to keep the party going. So why? Why would he, why would he do this? What, what does it say about the character of Jesus that he would, that he would do this? Jesus is poor, yet he is extravagant. I love uh, um, the fact that there are details given in this story, that there are specific details. Sometimes in Scripture we see uh, specific numbers and details. Later on in the book of John, he tells a story about Jesus um, uh, helping those same two, Peter and, uh, and Andrew. He helps them to catch a whole bunch of fish. And it says later on in John that they caught 153 large fish. It doesn't say lots. It doesn't say many. Uh, there's, there isn't this subjective uh, thing that we might uh, misunderstand later on. Yeah, really, how many did they catch? It says 153 fish. And here in this story, it says there were six gallons 
that were be, or six uh, jars that were between 20 and 30 gallons, averaging, let's say, 25 gallons per jar. We're talking about 569 um, liters of wine that were turned into. That would be uh, about 758 bottles of wine. Okay, that's more than the bottles of water that are here in this room. That's more, okay, can I see your water? Just lift your water up for me. That's more than the bottles of water here in this room is what Jesus, can, can this, this toast to that, would you? This, Let's toast to that. That's a whole lot of wine that Jesus, that Jesus produced for, the, for these folks. Jesus' extravagance, uh, Jesus' provision goes beyond sustenance. It goes into extravagance. Why would he do that? What does it say about his character? Jesus was poor, but he was extravagant. I said last week, oh man, that's good. That's good. I said last week that you can tell a lot about us, a person by what they create and uh, that, they're, that what they create uh, 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 says a lot about who that person is. So you can tell a lot more about Jesus by the extravagance of creation that he was part of. Um, you can, I mean, just look at the extravagance in the variety in creation. I mean, we have the blue whale that is 200 tons of beast, largest uh, beast that has ever been on the earth. 200 tons that, that meanders through our waters. And then on the other hand, we have the uh, butterfly, of which there are 15,000 varieties. 15,000 different butterflies. Oh, look, at, look at cats, for those of you who, who, uh, who like cats. They are, uh, there's a variety of cats. We have the little uh, butterball, furry, fluffy one. Uh, and then on the other end of that, uh, that species, we have the ferocious lions and tigers. Ah, oh, my. Um, all right, there are over 400,000 different types of beetles. The most number of any species of anything uh, that God created. Over, why did he do that? Why would God do that? I mean, God is extravagant in his creation. Look at water. Water is something that we can swim in, we can float on, we can surf on, we can dive into. Water creates a number of different sounds. It creates a beautiful sound that we're familiar with of a flowing brook. It sounds just like that. It can also create the thunderous sound of a waterfall. The power, it sounds just like that. The power of a waterfall. Or it can sound, or it can make the fascinating sound of crunching snow. It's a unique, that unique sound. Can you hear it? I'm, I'm taking you there, aren't I? I'm taking you skiing with me. But I mean, it makes all these, this amazing different sounds. And of course, it's incredible to drink. Of course, it's, there's, there's, and there's a variety of different ways that we can drink it. We can uh, drink it through the, the 10 cent bottle, which is a reminder that your church is extravagant with you today. You each receive the 10 cent bottle, but then on the other end of the, and 10 cents is, is a fair amount of money for a little bit of water. But uh, on the other end of the spectrum is, have you ever heard of Bling H2O? It's, uh, it's the most expensive water. It's what all the stars drink. Bling H2O is $40 a bottle. 
$40 a bottle. And what's fascinating to me about that is it's called Bling H2O. H2O, two hydrogen atoms, one oxygen atom. It's the same stuff. It's the exact same stuff that maybe goes through some sort of different filtering or whatever, but it's the same stuff. You know what, what Evian spells backwards, right? I mean, this, there's a variety of how we can uh, ex- experience the, the, the water. There's a variety of how we experience water. Water is extravagant. There's a whole lot of it on this earth. Feel it. Feel free to do that anytime you want. <laughs> Creation is extravagant. Jesus is extravagant. Now, can, do you see Jesus that way? Do you typically think of Jesus that way? As, um, as extravagant. Because how we view Jesus shapes how we respond to him. And... So do you view Jesus as a rule giver or a gift giver? Do you view Jesus as a rule giver or a gift giver? You see, a rule giver is a dictator. And all we can uh, receive from a rule giver is either approval if we've done well, or we can receive punishment if we have not done well. Here's the rule. You're either on this side of it or you're on the other side of it. A gift giver, however lavishes gifts, lavishes pleasure, joy, um, uh, uh, playfulness, what we talked about last week, Um, peace, love, purpose. The gift giver lavishes things on those whom he or she loves. That's the act, that's the role of a gift giver. So take a look at Sabbath. Sabbath is created from the very beginning of the story from God to say, uh, once a week, I want you to take a break, the Sabbath day. God modeled it in creation. Once a week, take a break, the seventh day. Does Sabbath come from a rule giver? This is actually what uh, ended up happening with many uh, many of the Jews in the story is that they started to attach rules onto this idea of Sabbath. In fact, uh, the Pharisees that we read about in the New Testament very much embraced the Sabbath as coming from a rule giver, and they added a bunch of rules onto it, that you are not allowed to light a fire on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to extinguish a fire on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to sow any material on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to rip any material on the Sabbath. And then... As we see in our New Testament story, Jesus, Jesus, you are not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to take care of somebody in that way on the Sabbath. You see, that's how someone who views Jesus as a rule giver would respond to the Sabbath. However, someone who sees Sabbath from a gift giver would see it as, as a reminder that we need to take a break as a reminder from someone who loves us that we have to take a break in order to be healthy. We can't just continue to burn the candle at both ends, uh, as they say. Is that from a rule giver or a gift giver? Or how do you view a quiet time or reading your Bible? Is that something that is 
that you are invited into by a rule giver or a gift giver? Is that something you're supposed to do because it's the rule? Or is it something that you are invited into by somebody who loves you and knows what your heart needs and knows what is best for you? What often happens is that a gift, uh, uh, something that was intended to be a gift, can become a burden if we shift to seeing it as a rule. That's what happens with boats. Uh, you know, you start off and it's a beautiful thing, it's a gift, but then it becomes a rule thing. You gotta do this, you gotta do that, and it becomes more of a burden. It shifts from getting to, I'm uh, sorry, it shifts from having to to getting to. I mean, that's the difference. Uh, getting to is when it comes from a gift giver, and having to is when it comes from a rule giver. And how we see Jesus as a rule giver or a gift giver shapes how we respond to him. So that if we see what, we've, what we're being asked to do or our understanding of, of what, how we're supposed to do life, if, we, if that becomes a, from a rule giver, then we think less fondly about the one who has given that gift. Do you see God as a demanding rule giver or an extravagant gift giver? Jesus is poor, but he was extravagant. So, now what does that mean in terms of uh, how we're supposed to uh, live life? Now, uh, it would make sense if we're going to be one of the 12, if we want to live our lives like Jesus, we want to be extravagant like, like Jesus, that this could roll over into how we handle our resources. That, that we are to, uh, when we are to love others, we are to... Um, be generous. We are to be extravagant. We are to, uh, to give more than we receive. It, would, it makes sense that that's part of the extravagant journey is to uh, love others in that way. But it, it also makes sense that that's how we can love God. The, the mission of our church is love God and love others. So can we do those two things in extravagant ways? How can we love God extravagantly? Well, there's three ways to give. Three L's, three ways to give. We can give from our leftovers, and that means that we, we take what we want, we take what we need, and then if, big if, if there is something left over, then we can give that to those who are in need or, uh, or wherever we uh, feel like we want to give. Now, that makes sense. That's a very logical way of doing it, and that's actually the way most people in America give. But it's not, it's not generous. It's not extravagant. It's not reflective of the extravagance of Jesus. The second way that one can give is out of loyalty. And most understand this to be the 10% uh, idea, that if I, if I receive $100, and I understand the whole thing comes from God anyway, I'm a manager of the money, I'm not an owner of it, and so I, I have $100, then out of loyalty, I'm going to give 10 of those dollars towards the work of the kingdom. And... Uh, uh, that's, a, that's a, a loyalty piece. But remember, Jesus is a gift giver, not a rule giver. Jesus doesn't talk about the 10%. 10% is a, is, a, is a great guideline as far as um, the loyalty piece, as far as getting started, as far as thinking this is a goal for me to go after. It's, it's absolutely great. But Jesus doesn't talk about 10%. He consistently talks about giving extravagantly. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't make a rule. He talks about, this is good for your heart. 
And because I care about you, I want you to embrace this. I want you to lean into this. And Jesus leans towards the third way of giving, and that is giving out of love. See, giving out of love is illogical. It goes beyond the logical piece. When you love somebody, when you're pursuing somebody, when you're dating somebody, you spend inappropriate amounts of money, and you're supposed to. (laughs) And it's just a natural thing. When we love, we want to give extravagantly. And so it pours out of that love. We give out, when we give out a loyalty, we'll give the, the 10%. When we give out of love, we might say, okay, what can I do with the 90% that I have left so that I can love God and love others? What can I do with this 90% in ways that continue to love God, love others? What can we do with our, with our resources, what we have been provided, what we have been gifted by God? What can we do with those in ways that reflect the extravagance of Jesus? That's a valuable question. It's an important question. But remember that Jesus was poor. Jesus didn't model what to do with money because he didn't have any. Okay, so, so how are we supposed to be extravagant if we feel poor, if you are so in debt, so upside down in your home, and the idea of extravagance, that's really not an option for you. And the idea of, of, of doing something supernatural like Jesus did at the wedding, that that's typically not a journey uh, that you're used to, the things that come out of your hands. Wouldn't it be cool if that was the case? I mean, I would love this morning, I would love, I've thought about it for a amount, I'd love to be able to say, okay, hold up your water bottles because I'm going to pray over them. And we're going to turn them all into chocolate malts. Wouldn't that be, I mean, for me, that would be, that would make the party uh, keep going. For me, that would be awesome. I, I doubt that's going to happen. And, and if it did, if you're get, if visiting with us and something like that happened, you'd be back. Because <laughs> you, maybe next week is strawberry. I mean... It'd be awesome. Let me just tell you, if there's anybody, I mean, just even in that little kind of uh, example there, if anybody actually has something like that happened to them this morning, let me know. I really want to, I'm really interested. So if we can't, uh, if we don't feel like we can uh, be extravagant because we don't feel like we have money, or we don't have the ability to do supernatural things like, like Jesus does in this story, how can we be extravagant? How can that look in our lives? Well, here's an idea. Go beyond fair. Go past fair. See, it would have been fair in this story to just let the party run out of wine. It would even have been fair and reasonable to say, well, okay, we'll provide some more cheap wine or the cheapest wine so that it would kind of seem like some of the other stories. That would be fair. But it wasn't fair what Jesus did. What if there was a sister of the bride who tasted that wine at the end and was upset because six months earlier she had her wedding and none of of this didn't happen at her wedding? That's not fair. It's not fair. See, we value fair. We talk about fair. Kids, uh, be fair. When you're going on your plan, be fair. Fair is very important to us. And we talk about fairness. But you know what we mean when we say, I want fairness? What we really mean when we say, I want fairness, is we mean, I want more. 
That's what fairness means. Because we rarely say, hey, wait, this isn't fair. I got too much. We rarely lean, it's not fair, I got too much. When you're interacting with customer service for a product that you uh, don't feel like uh, has been fair for you, you don't call and complain because you got too good of a deal on that. Few of you roll into the, the parking lot here at Mountain Park on a busy Sunday and you just roll right in and you get to the very front and there's a spot right at the very front, the best spot the best parking spot in the whole area, and you just get right in there and you see the spot, very few of you are going to say, you know what, it wouldn't be fair for me to take that spot. Other people have been kind of waiting and circling and there's a whole line over there. It wouldn't be fair for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find some other place to park. You, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. See, we value fairness. We like fairness. And, and fairness can be a good thing in a contract. If we're in contract with someone or with, uh, or with uh, some uh, business interaction, fairness is, is an okay thing. It's a good thing. But fairness kills relationships. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about loving God. We're talking about loving others. Fairness kills relationships. Relationships are never fair. Relationships are never fair. Let, let me tell you what I mean. Um, let me tell you how, how, how this might uh, look. In relationships, what we, what we, um, what, what is a healthy way to, to look at things is to say, uh, how can I how can I see the very best in this person? How can I see the best in this person? Because relationships are never fair. They're never fair. They're always one-sided. There are things that my wife can say to me that I can never say to her. I can never say those things to her. Who does she think she is? And there are things, vice versa. I mean, relationships are never fair. In terms of workload in the house and how things are distributed in the house, it's not fair. In terms of uh, bringing money into the house, it's not fair. My six-year-old daughter does very little to bring money into the house. <laughs> We've talked with her about that. <laughs> relationships are rarely fair. Relationships, relationships are never fair. That's not the whole goal of them. You see, fairness kills relationships. If, if it's all about shooting for fairness you'll lose because fairness kills relationships. In fact, the opposite of fairness is generosity because fairness stops at halfway. The opposite of fairness is going beyond that, is going into generosity. The opposite of fairness is extravagance. Those who are extravagant never stop at fair. Let me give you an, uh, an example of this. Um, I think this is a very relevant example. In fact, I'll tell you in just a moment why this is extremely relevant for me this week. Uh, so many of you are familiar with the love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the one that they uh, uh, read at weddings often. It's the one that might have a beautiful, uh, pretty uh, picture in the bathroom that has uh, these words on it. And, and while you're doing your business, you could look up at that. And it's really nice. <laughs> 
Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. And we, and we hear that and we listen to that, yes, yes, we read that, yes, yes, absolutely, yes. And Paul continues, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, love always protects. Yes, I'm in, yes, yes. And then the next one, love always trusts. Wait a minute. And that's where we might think, yeah, you don't know my husband. <laughs> you don't know my wife. So, so anyway, love, have you ever thought about that? Love always trusts. So even though he has made these terrible decisions in his past, I'm supposed to always trust. Really? Even though she continues to slip into these bad decisions, she continues to wrestle with, these, with this area of her life. Even though that's the case, that's our real situation, I'm supposed to always trust. How is that supposed to work? What does that look like? If we don't feel like we have the money to be extravagant, and we don't have the supernatural abilities to be extravagant, we can be emotionally extravagant with those we care about. And here's how we can do that. Find the most generous explanation for the situation and choose to believe that. Find the most generous, extravagant explanation and choose to believe that. So instead of saying, see, I told you you were gonna fail. I knew that you would let me down again. Instead of saying that, we say, it's all right. I believe in you. I trust you. Instead of saying, well, wait a minute, you're not going to be home again? You're going to be late again this week? You promised that you'd be home tonight, and you're going to be late again. Instead of saying that, we say, it's all right. We'll be here when you get here. I trust you had a good reason. That's hard. That even sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It sounds ridiculous. Well, let me tell you, if your assumption in every situation, 10 out of 10, is that that person is going to fail or that person has had bad intentions or wrong motives, 10 out of 10, you make the assumption, you assume the worst, 10 out of 10, you're going to be right. What if, what, if, what if you shift that to 1 out of 10, you make the assumption that something good is happening instead of something bad is happening? What if 2 out of 10, what if 5 out of 10 times you choose to find the most generous explanation for this story and you choose to believe that. What if you poured that into your marriage? How might that change things? This happened to me this week. I was uh, in the living room, which is right next to the kitchen area, and I was watching hockey highlights. And uh, uh, well, I have a way on TV where I can watch like four-minute version of hockey highlights and I can kind of catch what happened the night before. 
And I kind of have this regular sense of disapproval from my wife on this. That I, uh, what I'm doing is not right. It's not the right timing. And so I'm doing this here in the living room. And she turns on every appliance in the kitchen. She turns on everything that makes noise. She doesn't even have food in the blender. And it's, it's going. And, it's, and she's crumpling up and kind of make as much noise as she can. And I just know she's disapproving of what I'm doing. And she's being passive aggressive. And so I turn the thing off. And then I huff for the next couple hours. Steam's coming out of my hand. And I just, And then finally, we get together later on and we talk about it. And it's a, one of those little, it's a little thing, right? It's a tiny little thing. We have a little conversation about it. And I realized she had no idea that there was a problem. She, had, she was doing nothing intentional in this situation. She was not disapproving of what I was doing. She was not being passive aggressive. I was wrong. I was... I would have been much better off to imagine, to, to, to think of the most generous explanation for this story. Maybe she's, she's just testing the motors on all the appliances. <laughs> I would have been better off if I had, had thought of a generous explanation for this story and chosen to believe that. And I would have avoided. Now, you know what? Even if I was right... We still would have been better off if I had assumed the best in her. You see, great marriages don't avoid conflict. They can't. Great marriages assume the best in the other person in the midst of conflict. Don't assume that your marriage isn't doing as well as it could because you stumble into all these conflicts. No, conflict is unavoidable. It's how we respond to that conflict. See, the issue here is not about being right and wrong. It's never about being right and wrong. The issue is about the other person's heart. That's why it has to go beyond fair. It's about the other person's heart. So, for example, if he's always late, which, careful with the word always, but if he's often late, and when he's late, he comes home and you berate him for it, he's going to stop bringing his heart home with him. You see, you can be right in your, in your situation, in your argument, in your position. You can be absolutely right. And if, it, if you had to go to a court of law, you would have enough evidence to say, say, here's where I stand and here's where he or she was wrong. And you could absolutely win that argument. But that's not what you're fighting for. You could win that argument, but you could lose his heart. You could lose her heart. Let me revisit verse 4 here, just as I close. This is one where Jesus first speaks here in the book of John. Jesus' mother says to him, they have no more wine. And then he says in verse 4, dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. He's not being uh, uh, obstinate with his mom. He, had, he hadn't planned on entering into this yet. Yet the beauty of this story is that he does. 
He says, my time has not yet come. And then two verses later, he enters in. He takes that deep breath, and he enters in and performs this miracle. Why would he do that? He hadn't intended to. He does that because he loves to love us extravagantly. His mom asked him to enter in, and he responded. The safe part about this message is that you get to ask Jesus to love you extravagantly. You, his mom asked him to do that. W- would you change your plan and, and, and love us extravagantly, Jesus? That's why we can talk to him. We can pray with him. Don't assume that the whole thing is already laid out. We get to be involved with that. We're in relationship with him. We can talk with him and say, Jesus, I need you to love me extravagantly now, here in this moment. Be loved extravagantly by the king of all kings. That's the safe part. The dangerous part of this message is that we are, we are um, expected to show that love to others. That's the dangerous part. We are expected then to show that extravagant love to others. As we have been loved extravagantly, we are to love others extravagantly. This means going beyond fair, not stopping at fair. Going beyond that. This means going beyond what someone has earned or what someone deserves. And in situations, difficult, tough situations, to find the most extravagant, generous explanation for a scenario and choose to believe that, to stay in that place. If you're right, you have avoided a disaster. If you're wrong, you've poured into that person's heart what you believe they're capable of. It's a win-win. And the other way is a lose-lose. So often in our relationships, we put ourselves in lose-lose situations. Loving extravagantly is a win-win situation. So what we're going to do as we close is the band is going to come out and uh, do a couple more songs. And we're going to have the opportunity to just respond to God and receive his love extravagantly. Maybe that means uh, you need to come to the cross here and we have these red cards. And if you're new with us, uh, we do this fairly regularly. We have a number of ways for you to respond. And you can take one of these red cards and write on it something that perhaps you need the extravagant love of Jesus to forgive you for. You can nail that to the cross. Up here at the front, you can come for what we call unassisted prayer. No one's going to bother you. No one's going to tap you on the shoulder. Over here, you can light a candle, which represents the light of Christ, maybe uh, that you want that in your life or in the life of someone that you care about. And over here to the right is, uh, is uh, anointing. James chapter 5 um, talks about if you need the healing power of God, that you would come and the elders or the pastors of the church would anoint you. And they put a little uh, cross-shaped uh, oil uh, on your forehead as a symbol of God's power. At either of these corners is what we call assisted prayer. Folks on our prayer team would love to pray with you. We have communion available in the middle for those of you who are followers of Christ. The bread represents the body of Christ and the cup represents his blood poured out for you. Over here we have uh, one of the 12, which if you have not had the opportunity to sign this yet, you can come and do that. If you don't know what that means, please come talk to me or somebody else. 
here on staff, we'd love to talk with you about what that means, what that looks like. Or you can just stay where you are. Just receive the extravagant love of God. Would you bow your heads with me? God, thank you that you do not stop at fair. You go way beyond fair. You go way beyond sustenance. That your love is extravagant. We want to receive from you here this morning. Speak to us in personal and powerful ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.